Welcome to World of Soundtracks, a podcast where we explore storytelling aspects in films and TV through music. Whether it is comparing book adaptations, observing themes over a series, or microanalyzing the choice of instruments, we look at how the story is told and moves us. I'm your host, Ruth Mudge, and today we will be having an interview with composer Sherry Chung. Award-winning composer Sherry Chung has been recognized internationally as a trailblazing composer for film and television. Her music transcends genre and fuses inspirations, both traditional and emerging, in support of filmmakers' visions worldwide. Sherry currently composed the scores for the TV shows Kung Fu on The CW, HBO Max animated series Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai, and most recently the Netflix feature film Happiness for Beginners and NBC's Found, premiering this October. Frequently recognized for her other television credits, including the CW Network series Batwoman in Riverdale, NBC's Blindspot, and Ava DuVernay's limited series The Red Line, she has also scored numerous feature films, documentaries, and commercials. Recent film credits include Warner Brothers Studios' Nancy Drew in The Hidden Staircase and The Lost Husband, the latter which garnered her a Society of Composer and Lyricists nomination for Best Score for an Independent Studio Film. She also composed the score for The Other Side of Home, which is shortlisted in the 2017 Oscars for Best Short Documentary. Not only a composer, Sherry is also a pianist, vocalist, performer, and songwriter. As a vocalist, she has recorded for films, commercials, trailer music, and television, including ABC's Resurrection, CW's Arrow, and NBC's Blindspot. Her voice can also be heard on the Netflix documentary series The Keepers, which is Emmy-nominated for Outstanding Documentary. An active member of the film music industry, Sherry also serves as governor of the music branch of the Television Academy. A few notes before we get into the interview. If you aren't familiar with Sherry or her work, I still recommend listening to this interview as it gives a glimpse into what life is like for a working TV composer. We discuss everything from getting started in the business, both as a performer and composer, working with other composers, working on numerous projects at the same time, to both the delights and challenges of working in TV. We discuss creating musical worlds and sounds for different kinds of shows, in particular, her animated series Gremlins, Secrets of the Magwai, using both an orchestra and Chinese instruments to help show the magical world of the Magwai, as well as 1920s Shanghai, China. The animated series of Gremlins is a prequel to the 1984 Gremlins movie, scored by the legendary film composer Jerry Goldsmith, so we talk about using and adapting two of his themes in the new animated series. Finally, I will say that for those of you who are not familiar with the CW superhero shows, we do reference them a bit. Arrow, based on the comic book character Oliver Queen, was the first one, which Sherry sang vocals on during season three. The success of Arrow spurred on another four superhero shows with the same composer, Blake Neely, over several years. At the height of having seven shows, Blake Neely brought on three other composers to help co-compose with him on these superhero shows, as well as two other unrelated shows, Riverdale and NBC's Blindspot. Sherry is one of these composers, and they all came together once a year for a crossover event featuring characters from all the superhero shows, as well as including musical themes from each show. We do talk about that a little bit, so I wanted to give you a little context for those of you less familiar with these shows. 
We also reference her recent show on Peacock based on a true story, which is a dark comedy thriller regarding a couple who gets into podcasting about a murder. And with all that background, without further ado, here is Sherry Chung. Welcome to Soundtracks. We're very excited to have you. I don't know how much uh, Kate told you, but I've actually been a, a fan since I've been a big fan of the Arrowverse. And I've been following Blake Neely for a long time. And I wrote lots of lots of blogs and <laughs> reviews on all the music for Arrow for a long time. Yeah. So I, I'm very curious about a lot of that. But one of the things I like to talk about is the idea of the first one. So that is the first soundtrack that really caught your imagination that you remember listening to, or even that you bought. So I wanted to start with that first. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think this is hugely fun. And I, I, just, I love talking about music and even other people's music too. So it's not, not always that fun. But it's so funny that you asked that because it's my absolute go-to. It's the soundtrack or the, the score to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves mm. by Michael Kamen. Yeah. And that was, that was the one, that was the first compact disc I ever owned. It was the first soundtrack I ever bought. And it was the the score and movie like that started it all in terms of I want to be I want to do that for a living. And I think I was about twelve or thirteen when I saw it, and I was like, "That's what I want to do." So that was it. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, score by Michael Kamen. Do you remember if there was something specific like the Great Brass Overture or even the '80s Marianne theme? Or yeah. you know, it wasn't even like the the song really per se. But it, that overture you mentioned, like you hit it right on the. It's I'm not going to, but I, I feel like I could just hum the whole thing and all sure. the different. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just so moving. Mm-hmm. I had heard soundtracks before. I'd obviously seen movies before, but there was was none that had hit me like that, you know, obviously with the movie first, but then it's like, even without the movies, and and even still to this day, it's just amazing. I feel like I discover something new each time I listen to it. We'll probably be jumping around a little bit, but do you find that all that brass of the overture of Prince of Thieves kind of translated a little bit into Gremlins, being able to do a lot of brass and French horns and even some trombones as you get to tell kind of a legend story? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't, I wouldn't be able to say like directly, oh yes, I was channeling that. Sure. But right, I think we all channel something that moves us when we're younger. And then as we matriculate in our lives, you know, which is mm-hmm. kind of adds to our repertoire of things that we, that we might even know that we're drawing upon, you know, different experiences. But I think to a certain extent, yes, right? It's like, it's especially in that project, you know, the stories, it's very epic, it's very adventure, the scope of it, the depth, all those things. And so I think if you think about all the movies that you grew up with or the movies that just move you and you're just like, I got to pull in from all of those, all those um, references in my, in my little Rolodex, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are there any other composers over, over time or movie soundtracks that really have stood out to you either currently or in the past? That you just love. Yeah, I mean, especially with Gremlins, I, I, I hadn't uh, Jerry Goldsmith, like f- for sure. But I, and I hadn't yeah. right, and I, and I hadn't really gone specifically out to like study his his scores per se. But when I when I just did a little research, I was like, I've really been growing up with his scores just from yeah. from a young age. I mean, obviously John Williams and stuff too. But but you know, Dario Marinelli is a is a huge. Yes. I oh my goodness, his score to. Pride and Prejudice, his score mm-hmm. to Atonement. Yes. Which won the Oscar that year. I mean, he's which just... Which needed to. It was which needed to, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was nominated for Pride and Prejudice. I still think he should have won. Yeah. Okay. You know? I might be biased that way, too. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just just all of those scores that 
you know, I, I, I would say that I'm more probably most moved by orchestral scores sure. um, or, I mean, Dario Marinelli is using a lot of like piano driven scores as well. So that, that's my main instrument as well. So that's always very moving. Um, even the score to the piano is a really great, great one too. And I forget, mm. who was it? It's not Patrick Doyle who did that score. Oh, oh gosh. I'm totally listening. forgetting right now. I know. I know. So many, <laughs> <laughs> so many scores. I know. I, yeah. But, but just all, all those, I mean, it, they're, they're so inspiring and, um, and just evocative, uh, you know, and, and they're transportive too. I feel yes. like mm-hmm. taking, yeah. taking you on a journey. Uh, yes, absolutely. Through, through the world. Absolutely. Probably I would assume one of the fun parts about creating the world of deciding kind of what you're going to do to create a world, either with the instruments or different motifs and kind of getting to set the stage regardless yeah. of your project. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's always the hardest part when I start a project, probably, for, I think for a lot of composers too, it's just, you know, where do you begin? And then kind of building that, I, I liken it to you know, a sandbox. Like, you know, you, ha- you, mm-hmm. there, you do have to have parameters. Like you can't, sure. you can't just do this. But the blank canvas is, is terrifying. <laughs> um, but then, but, but I feel like for me, when I, when I start to form rules, mm-hmm. like, no, we, you know, this, this instrument's only used maybe on this character or, or again, form, as you mentioned, like forming your themes or your motifs. I mean, those, those, that's a rule right there. It's like, well, this is a theme for this character or for this part of the story. So it only gets used at certain times when you start to form those parameters or that sandbox. And then I feel like that's when you can start to play. That's when you can really start to like have a lot of fun because now you know what the language is, you know, what the, the vocabulary is and sometimes with the harmonic structure or the melodic, uh, excuse me, melodies um, mm-hmm. and the instrumental rules. I think that that's actually um, where it's, where it gets fun, but, but before that, it's really terrifying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Figuring out what works for this world, what's being set up, all of that. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And making sure that there's continuity. There's like an actual th- like through line mm-hmm. um, to something it's, it's, it's important because it's different in episodic than it is in film. I have found because in film, you can see the beginning, middle, and the end and episodic you can only see the beginning, middle, end of your, of your episode. You can't really see it of the entire arc of the season, let alone the series. Cause you don't even know if it's like going to go for subsequent, you know, seasons. Sure. So you kind of have to make sure that your, you know, your themes work mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for all instances, I guess. Yeah. And you've done a couple series that have lasted like Riverdale was what, seven seasons or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that's a long time to kind of keep track of all your different themes and how they work together. Yeah. Um, did you ever find you go, you have to like a list of just where things are so you could pull yeah. from them? You know what, the the way that, and I, and I learned this cause you met, you mentioned Blake. So I'll mention, and obviously I, I, I wrote, I, I was a co-composer with Blake on Riverdale. Yes. And, you know, I, I learned from him and he's got a great, he had, he kind of had a great system that I, I took it and, you know, kind of made it my own as well, but basically cataloging the music, you know, when you catalog it and you give it this metadata, you give it and you put in, oh, okay, this is Varchi's theme or Varchi's theme, or this is Bughead's theme, or this is, you know, Veronica's theme, the Lodge's theme. And then even going to the superhero shows, it's like, oh, there's this, this theme and that. So it does get hard to keep track of them, but once we just clicked on the catalog, you know, and, and I was like, oh, right, right, right. I, I understand. Sure. And that was actually really useful too. When, when I was working on the superhero shows 
with the other writers, uh, the other composers with Blake, you know, because there were some characters that we, you know, we would all join together on the crossovers. Oh yeah. Those were massive. Yeah. They were massive. They're huge, (laughs) you know, and Blake would sort of architect it and like kind of say, okay, you take this section, you take this one, you take this one. And there were sometimes uh, themes that I, uh, of characters that I had never worked on before, like reverse death stroke or something like that, you know, and I just like, I have have no idea who that guy is because I don't really work on that show. And so we go, see, it was great to all be in the same building. And sometimes it would just knock on someone's door and they would hand me some stat paper and like, there's their theme, you know, or I'd go (laughs) take a look on this episode, uh, this season and this cue and, or this, this music start and like, listen to their theme and about 35 seconds in you'll hear a big statement of the theme and so it's kind of always fascinating to kind of dive into my colleagues work as well and Blake's work and kind of see what have you guys been up to for all these years on these superhero (laughs) shows you know I I wrote on some of them but we divvied them up a bit more yeah the catalog organization is really important (laughs) I'm sure it is keeping track especially as you mentioned with series that's just a whole nother level which by at least five shows going into a couple episodes is just kind of crazy yeah it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot so I am curious what was your first project that you wrote for was it student film was it a commercial what Ooh. okay all right you're taking me back now I the first thing that I ever wrote to picture for was I think well it might have been a short but but the one that's actually more of an interesting story so I I can't remember if this one was it or the other one but I'll I'll talk about the other one it was a horror film and it was a self-made horror film me and three friends got together and we well I think someone else wrote it but to put together collectively we wrote it we shot it we acted in it I mean, and we did, we did the whole location searching and the beg, borrow and stealing. And then, and then I, I wrote the music for it and then we screened it at a local theater and it was the most terrifying experience ever. And I, I mean, it was just, it was just such a, but it was such a good one, right? Because when you start anything, it's your learning curve is so steep that you just, you get better, like really, really quickly, but you also, it's really sometimes embarrassing to to, to look and see (laughs) what have I never seen a movie before? You know, it's just, so right, right. it was a horror film that I also, I was also acting. And by the way, I am not an actor. Like, and, and whether you're an actor or not, you could, you could watch me on screen at trying to act and be yeah. like, definitely not your forte. <laughs> well, but when you're doing it with your friends, I mean, I had something similar with a group of friends after college and yeah, you definitely didn't want to see me acting whatsoever, but she was throwing us all together and, you know, just so that she could put together this little again, home home movie that she had created. Yeah. And it's fun to look back and, and hope that nobody else sees it. But I don't, um, Oh my gosh, yeah. I won't even tell you what the name of it is so nobody right. goes. <laughs> was this in uh, high school, in college? Yeah, I, yeah. It was just after college. I don't even think that I wrote anything to picture in high school, or maybe I did a little bit in, maybe I did in, in high school, or maybe in college. I don't really remember, but I think a lot of it was just more, my first degree was, was composition and theory. So I was going the much sure. more like, um, formal sort of stuffy. Classical. <laughs> yeah. Classical route. And which, which made sense at the time. Cause there, there really weren't that many programs, no. curriculums, you know, doing, you know, doing, exactly, exactly. So that really wasn't out there. I mean, the, the couple that were, I just, in Berkeley, I, I wanted to go, I got in, I couldn't go. The money wasn't, I just couldn't afford it basically. Sure. That, and I think that might've been the only like undergraduate degree at the time in film composing. So yeah, it wasn't really until after that, that I really tried my hand in it. 
you know, even though I wanted to do it since my younger age, sure. but, but back in my day, back yeah. then, the internet <laughs> wasn't, you know, we didn't have Google, oh, yeah. we didn't have YouTube, mm-hmm. we didn't have any of those things that you could just, you couldn't even like grab a picture that had no music in it and just try writing to it. We didn't have garage band kids, okay? Yeah. You know? <laughs> we had wind up radios and the wheel had just been invented. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> Did you find um, in your composition classes, I know that at least in my undergrad and probably a little bit in my grad school, um, a lot of it was, let's go slightly avant-garde, maybe a little less tonal, kind of that direction of composition, or were you able to create what you wanted in different styles? I think, yes, it was a little bit of both because of that classical training. It was like, oh yeah, try your hand at some 12 tone, you know, Mm -hmm. and which I think was really great because it helped me understand, you know, what's out there so that you can pick and choose. And and eventually as you get into your career, you can cherry pick and say, yeah, that stuff really does not move me. And and 12 tone really didn't. But the idea of being avant-garde, the the idea of being, the idea where like the purpose is to break the rules or to do something not traditional that's a really important lesson as an artist right I mean I think it's sure. really important to learn that that that's not just something that people will do because they don't know the rules it's something that we mm-hmm. that, that artists can actively do in order to to be different and I think that's that's a really important lesson yeah. I think no absolutely um, yeah. that makes a lot of sense yeah, but in general, I'm a much, I'm a, I'm a very tonal, sure. <laughs> I'm a much more tonal, uh, but, you know, try to be more lyrical. I'm a very rhythmic writer. I feel like most of my music probably lends itself to, it's easily digestible. You know, you know what I'm saying? It, it takes you on a journey as opposed to mm-hmm. challenges. I don't think my music <laughs> in general, I mean, it, it challenges me. I mean, it's not my instinct to, to want to challenge a person. That said, right. in the projects that I take on, I like to be, I like to be challenged. I like what I work on to challenge an audience, necessarily mm-hmm. musically, but in the story and in the content sometimes, I find that I gra- sort of gravitate towards that. I like to seek order where there's chaos, so... <laughs> I think that makes sense. And most of your audience will resonate with that. I think there'll be a very small group where they're like, oh, wow, look, it's so avant-garde. But most of the time, that's not what your listener is wanting to happen. They want to be taken on the emotional journey with the music right. instead. Right. Yeah. Which, which sometimes does require for it to be a little bit out of the norm and, and tonally ambiguous a little bit because yeah. it's, it has to be unsettling or it has mm-hmm. to be disturbing or it has to be... Sure. You know, make you question and make you feel uncomfortable or something. Right. Like uh, based on a true story. There was definitely yes. a lot yeah, of dissonance yeah, yeah. in there, um, especially with the piano, especially to yeah. have like noir sound to it. Yeah. Yes. yeah no, and that, that was a fun project. It was a challenging project for me because to find what we felt was the right tone of, of what we wanted to say in, in the music. And I say we, I talk about them. Craig Rosenberg, the show's creator and, and writer and showrunner. Sure. And we worked really closely on that tone. And there were lots of times where he would say, you know, I think you're putting, I think you're doing too much with the music because, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I'm trying to, you know, with, with Kaylee Cuoco's character and Chris Messina's character, and they have this really quick, fast banter back and forth, the music, and I, I was like, well, I'm going to do that with the music too, you know, and, sure. and, and look, we all, we know is sometimes you, sometimes you follow the dialogue in that way and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of those times where I tried doing it. It wasn't working. It was like too much, you know, sure. it was like, let them do the quick banter and let the music kind of lay back a little bit. And then on the other side, you have scary or horror moments where he's like, I really think we should lean into this more. Mm-hmm. Really, really put us in that moment and, and really let the audience know that, yeah, this is a really dark 
right right, right here. So um, but that's that's the kind of collaboration that I like with a showrunner or a director, mm-hmm. just somebody who I'm going to have my own ideas of sure. how far to push something or how how much to back off or how restrained to be. But it's really important to have their input and say, actually, my vision for it really requires us to really go for it or or pull back, you know, in a different area than I thought. Um, so that's, that's a great part of the collaborative effort of a project. And yes, and finding the tone of something is is really requires that back and forth, I think. Mm-hmm. With, with TV shows, you do less with directors probably and more with the actual showrunners and producers. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah. Because they're uh, overseeing the whole thing. Absolutely. And in some cases you get something where it's like, it's the same director for each time. So you, you might work with them as well. Certainly on a pilot, I'll often work with the showrunner and that director of that pilot. Uh, but you're right. Oftentimes it's, it's the showrunner to some, you know, because there's different directors usually on, on every single episode. Sure. So how did you get, I'm very curious, cause I know you have also done some recording as a vocalist and as a pianist. I guess I was curious about the timing. Did you record vocals for Arrow in season three? Is that correct? I think it was season three. It was, but I did it before I was writing with That's Blake. what I was wondering if you did the recording first. Did yes. that help get you your foot in the door? Was it something else that kind of brought you to yeah. start working with Blake Neely as a co-composer? Yes. That's actually a lot of what it is. I met Blake when I was in grad school and he was mm-hmm. one of the professors or advisors and he taught a class and I just really, I just really enjoyed his class. I enjoyed the assignments. It sounds so like nerdy of me. Like, oh, I really <laughs> like the homework. <laughs> but look, but by the time you're going to grad school, you want to be there. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I mean, you know, Absolutely. You, you actually really enjoy the learning process and the, the process it takes to learn, which is, which mm-hmm. includes the assignments. And so I really actually did enjoy his assignments because I felt like I was learning a lot. I enjoyed his approach to how he he looked at a scene and how he looked at a project and his his feedback I thought was really great. So I had stayed in touch with him after and I I used this phrase before, you know, professionally stalked him. <laughs> but it was um very polite too. It it wasn't really stalking, but I but I did every now and then every every few months I would sort of you know, maybe a couple times a year, I would, I would just reach out via email or something like that and just kind of send him like one track and just be like, oh, this is, you know, this is just something I wrote, just thought, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have time to listen to it, but if you do, there it is, you know, and, right. and if, he was, if I knew he was doing a workshop or some sort of class or master class or something, I would make sure to show up to it or go to mm-hmm. it, just kind of stayed in touch. And luckily he was amenable to that. And then uh, he also was an advisor at another sort of program called the Sundance Film Music Institute which unfortunately is a bit defunct at this point, only recently. I was a fellow in there and, and, and he was an advisor. So that was another opportunity for me to get to know his music and him, him to get to know my music. Yeah. So we sort of crossed paths professionally throughout the years. And then, and he knew that I sang because I had sent him some tracks over the years that had my vocals in it. But sure. it was for really no other reason than I was having fun. And this was a track I really wanted him to hear. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I wasn't thinking, oh, maybe he'll hire me as a vocalist. Because that wasn't really right. what I was trying to do, per se, right. in my career. But, you know, hey, you put yourself out there. And, and when someone says, hey, will you sing? Uh, do you want to come and sing on this pilot that I'm that I'm working on? And I said, heck, yeah, I do. But I sure. And then from there, it was, and then he said, why don't we try and, pitch on a couple of things and using your vocals and mm. then I then I sang for him on arrow yeah. and then and then it was like oh well you write songs let's also write some songs together but, but none of it was writing for him none of it was scoring none of it was the stuff that I really wanted to do in in my career but it was all stuff that I was so happy to be involved in because 
a career is just not one. I mean, any career is just not one lane. It's not like no. this is the only thing you do, and it's yeah. not the only way to get there. And mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to just be involved in music, whether that was you know using my voice or using my piano skills or using my songwriting. Yeah, I just wanted to be involved mm-hmm. and just collaborating with somebody that I really respected and really looked up to. Like Blake Neely was just like a dream come true, and I never, I never even thought that it would lead to additional writing. Certainly, credit, certainly where I've been able to go from from there, mm-hmm. but that is exactly what the path was. It's just meeting him as a student, mm-hmm. and then staying in touch with him. And he, and he did. He, he really became a mentor to me, and then a collaborative partner. And and now we're just great friends. We don't even have any projects to work on anymore. Yeah. But and now he's kind of a landlord. I mean, I he owns a building, and I rent several rooms from him. Okay, um, I was curious about that. Yeah, yeah. And and how that would and, work. Yeah, yeah and I'm, I have two assistants, and my and so I run my whole operation, and I just rent space from him. So now it's just become. We now we're just great friends. But it's really great to look back at those relationships that we form, even from when we're in school, and and again, just how you how we can put ourselves out there, and how one thing leads to something that I never thought it, it would, and it's just it's kind of a great journey in in music and career and and yeah. friendship. Really great, yeah. I know that I love the vocals of the tracks from those uh, vocal things. I think they've been saved on my Spotify list for years now. Oh, awesome. So that's been a true joy. And then it took a while to find out who actually sang because I didn't actually have the album. That's the one problem with Spotify sometimes yep. is you don't know who sings. No. Which, by the way, I do appreciate that um, on the Gremlins soundtrack, you have a couple moments of going, we are featuring this violinist or this air who player because it is harder to tell when you don't have the full cd yeah who the performers are um, and we don't even make i mean i don't even know if we I, there are no hard copies of that like i didn't even have them made. so i appreciate hearing that feedback i'll make sure to you know to keep doing that and there's not always the uh, there's not always the option to do it at least at, at least not an easy option because especially if it's not self-released if it's self-released you can do whatever you want but sure. on these types of things where the studio is doing it and they've got their own label sometimes you kind of have to you know check it and be like hey i'd like to put a featured artist in here and stuff like sure. that. But yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. So I'm, I'm happy to be found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Gremlin, I will say listening to the soundtrack, that was one that was like, I can listen to this over and over and over again. There is a great melodic quality that I can just, I can remember very easily. Um, I love the colors and you can really tell the story very clearly with all Yay. the different themes and I love also the different Chinese instruments that mm-hmm. are involved in there. Um, I know that there's the Uru and then there's the other one. Oh. What is it? I'm not going to pronounce it. That's the one I was like, oh, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I'm probably pronouncing it a little bit wrong. I, I've been coached and still I get it wrong. But. <laughs> it's but yeah, such but yeah. a cool instrument. It sounds somewhat like a dulcimer. But also a little. Oh, oh that would that would be the the gujong, the gujong. Yes, 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 the one looks like a dulcimer. Yes, the string is. Yeah, the DC, but the, yes, the, the plucking instrument. That's the gujong. The DC are like the other and some Chinese flutes and bamboo flutes and stuff like that. It was a fun, really fun project. Because I know that most of the time you haven't been able to use a full orchestra for your projects because most of your stuff has been network television. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's been the CW. So like the superhero shows, you get to do your your crossovers and your pilots and probably your finales with the orchestra maybe. But other than that, you can't just partly due to budget, quite honestly, I have a feeling is part of it and time. You're totally right. Budget and time. There's just no time to do it. And there's, and there's no money. I mean, those are, those are big operations to do that. Right. 
So, and I, I don't know how about NBC or because I know you've done blind spot there as well, and it may just not have fit sound same thing, wise. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so now yeah. you have HBO Max, which is now just Max, but now you can use the whole orchestra sound. So, what was like that to just suddenly realize, wait, I don't have to do either what's on my electronic logic or whatever programs you use sounds, but now I can actually use the entire orchestra. Yeah. Well, I, I will say that. Of all the projects that I've done, I mean, it's not necessarily a certain network or a certain studio that like that doesn't allow or a certain kind of show. It's just really it just depends on the production. It really does. Because on, on Kung Fu, which was also on CW, there was there was a small a much smaller budget there, but mm-hmm. I, I did use a quartet. So I did use a live live yeah. element. I did have the air who was as well. Mm-hmm. Um on that one as well. But it, it's a, it really comes just down to like different productions. But it, you are right, it is a dream that HBO and Amblin, I think it was really like Warner Brothers Animation and Amblin that were really pushing for the live recording. And it was a dream to be able to work with a full orchestra on it. And, you know, I I will say that when I started the project, that wasn't going to happen. It was actually one of the conversations that we had. It was like, hey, look, we don't really have the budget to do this or to, to do anything live. How, you know, how can we find another way to bring a live element. I said, well, we could write, so I could write soloistically. And so you have one live player Mm -hmm. or a smaller ensemble. Sure. When we really got into it and I started writing it, I'm like, this has to be fully orchestral. I can't do this in the box. It's just going to sound, and the show is just so good that I'm like, guys, we, what can we do? And so instead of going to them and asking them for money at first, what I did was I just I, I just got some budgets together. I just did my own research and got quotes and estimates and put a whole budget together and then took it to them and said, hey, we we could record. It was, it was a strategy that I gave them a budget to record here in Los Angeles, which I knew was going to be more expensive and was going to scare them. The number was going to scare them. But I did that on purpose because then I gave them the number of recording out of town. Oh, sure. Remotely. Look, look how much more feasible this is. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know what? We can do that. That's great. Mm-hmm. So we actually took the first season uh, out of town and I, I just, I recorded it in Budapest and uh, I did it remotely. I didn't go there, but I did it remotely. Okay. We have a great system and a great setup. The players are really fantastic. And and so I, I was able to do it and there and do a full orchestra. Um, and I will say that even though second season has not come out yet, mm-hmm. Second season, we actually did bring it back to Los Angeles. We did bring it to Los Angeles and we did wow. it on a union contract, which was which was it was largely unheard of to mm-hmm. to go from spending little money to even more money. It's usually the other way around. Yeah. But again, it's all a huge testament to Warner Brothers Animation and Amblin and and Max or you know HBO as well, just to kind of believe in that kind of product mm-hmm. from the quality of the show all the way through post, all the way through the scoring process. Just as you already mentioned, it was a phenomenal experience. It was such a beautiful moment because I will admit sometimes in some of the products I've had when there's not enough money, it can become very frustrating because sure. what you want to do is you want to do the best job that you can for that project mm-hmm. and your hands are tied with budget constraints and time constraints and, and other things. But that said, that's also the job. You know what I'm saying? But that's mm-hmm. also, it's just, that's just what it is. And that's something that you learn in school. When I went to grad school for this yeah. career, it's like you have to learn how to work within those parameters because you're always going to have those parameters. I think yeah. maybe the only people that maybe don't is like this tiny 
tiny number of composers in the stratosphere, like the Hans Zimmers and the Danny Elfmans, where John most, Williams, the John Williams, most of the time the budget is just unlimited for them, mm-hmm. you know, and that's okay, and that's great. It's, it's what it is. And as I mentioned, I like to I like the challenge sometimes, but sure. Gremlins was was truly a dream project in that way. That's so cool. So have you already finished then recording for the second season? Uh, yes, coming out? it's already done. It's waiting, wow. it's waiting for the world to see it. You know, mm-hmm. I think it'll be sometime in 2024. Wow. Um, yeah, I just, I, I hope fans really love it. I hope honestly fans really love the first season because if you love the first season, the second season is just even, even better. I think. Sure. It's, or it's a continuation of how great I think the first season was. It's, re- it's really special. Mm-hmm. Were you actually able to be physically present then since it was in Los Angeles? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So what was that like instead of just having the remote aspect of Budapest to being in the space or in the studio? Yeah, it, it, it very much is a different experience because you can be in the room with the musicians. You can talk directly to them. You can you can shake their hands after. There's no language barrier, although Budapest handles it very, very well. Sure. But, you know, there, there is a language barrier. So there is a translation period. So there is a time constraint. And... This is no reflection on anyone else in the world, but I will tell you, Los Angeles musicians are just some of the best musicians in the world. Yeah. And so there's there's a musicianship quality there that is just hard to match, it's hard to beat. But again, that that's not saying anything negative about anyone else in the world. It's, that that is really special, and it is different. So it was also a time difference that so was nice to not have to get up at four sure. in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> understandably you know and also the the other difference that I was able to do here in town was I was able to put all of the musicians in the same room whereas in Budapest it it was it just worked out better through other things to separate them and do what's called striping so have just the strings Mm. in one session and then have just the brass and the wind in another Mm. session just kind of the best way to do it logistically with other constraints being considered. But here in LA, I was able to put them all in the same room. And then, and it actually cuts down on time and it actually really, really elevates the getting a performance instead of just getting a good take, you know, but actually getting a performance because then the musicians can hear each other. The brass can hear what the strings are doing Mm -hmm. and the bass. All the musicians are more informed when they're doing their performance. And I mean, I know people in Budapest wanted it too, but we just couldn't do it for the logistics. Oh, it's, it's a, again, dream project, dream project. Yeah, that's awesome. No, that totally makes sense. Um, I'm a cellist and yeah, when you're in you know. the whole orchestra, it just is different than when you're recording separately. And again, sometimes you just have to, but it's, yeah. it's just not the same of fully engaging with Absolutely. everybody else. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. The first opening, how did you feel when they told you basically you have four mo- minutes of animation and music? And there's no oh. words. It reminded me of Up. I mean, that's one of the most famous, you know, oh, I know. sequences that has no words. So was it one of those things where, again, challenging, but slightly terrifying at the same time? Yes, exactly that. And it was, you know, the, the project started out, the entirety of the project started out that way for me because I, it was Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, it was following in yeah. the footsteps of Jerry Goldsmith. And we'd had several conversations. The greatest thing that I could have, that helped me the most about that was, really what the showrunners and the creator had said, which was, yes, we, we even in the show, we're paying homage to Joe Dante's original versions of the, of the film and, and what Amblin was doing. And yes, musically, you know, we, we are hoping for some homage paid to Jerry Goldsmith, but we are also trying to do our own thing. So yeah. feel free to do your own thing. We, we, we're really open to your ideas. Mm-hmm. So 
I think that's one of the that's one of the greatest things that that could that can be said to an artist. I think is just we're really open to what what you're feeling. I also think it's a sign of a good collaboration too, and I also think it's just a sign of a good fit when what they were open to was what I wanted to do. You know, it just yeah. it just so happened to be like what you know what I ended up wanting to do and, and felt like the show needed was also something that they were like, yes, how did you know? It's like I didn't know. It was just it was just a good fit. Again, dream project. But yeah, the starting of the project, I I actually did go linearly. I actually did. I, I didn't really jump around that much. I started it from the very beginning. We already talked about they wanted a, a, a Chinese flair. They wanted a Chinese, specifically when we actually get to Shanghai in the yes. 1920s, they, they, they wanted to lean into that. They didn't want it to tone, tone it down. But I also knew that it had to be accessible to the story. It couldn't just be straight up using all of the sort of more Eastern or Chinese scales. It couldn't, in just, it couldn't, I don't feel that, I shouldn't say it couldn't, there's lots of ways to do everything, right? But Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that it could be solely exactly Chinese music, all the music that you would go, it would hear if you were in China. But I did feel that you needed to feel that sort of orchestral and, and be, also have roots in our Western harmonizations and and that kind of thing. Certainly, lyrically, it could lend itself well. Now, also in that opening, you have Gizmo who sings part of his lullaby, and then you have all yeah. the other Maui. And so it was really great to kind of be able to try and craft something that would give us the scope of how the camera was moving and then, you know, the the Chinese element of it, and then just have something that really worked lyrically. I will say this, that in writing that melody at the opening, yeah. I, I was really proud of it. I was like, oh, and, and they loved it. It was really great. Mm-hmm. I never knew that it would ever be that I would ever sort of join it in with Jerry Goldsmith's arrangement of like a, the big gizmos otherwise. So when you get to like the last episode and you have it when he's going to go home and you yes. have, and then there's actually another place in there too, where it happens that when he actually gets finally gets back to the, to the Valley of Jade. And it was, I will say this and I, and I mean this really, this is not meant to be egotistical. It's going to, I feel like it's, I, I fear that it's going to sound like I'm <laughs> bragging about my own music and I just, no, I, no, I'm I mean, really not, but it was this beautiful as an artist and as a composer, when you don't always know how your themes are going to fit in and how they're how it's really going to work out, you just take that leap of faith and you just go with your feelings and having Jerry Goldsmith's Gizmo's lullaby, da, 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 and then have it go into da, da, like my own melody from the very beginning was a really moving moment because I it was kind of the first time I felt like a real composer yeah (laughs) I was like Jerry we did it it was a it was a really important moment as a composer I think as an artist especially when you're taking something that is already existing and part of a franchise and part of an iconic franchise for people you know for audience members and it was just it was a really special moment that was the first time that I realized that that melody really worked was when it actually it could be brought back in a really moving way and it could carry on literally Jerry Goldsmith's Mm. music so it was a really special moment I humbly shared that experience (laughs) but yeah the the opening four minutes of, of animation I think terrifying but also really important to be able to establish you know, story and really kind of spread your wings in that way, musically. Absolutely. That's one of the things I love as a listener is to hear the themes come together and realize, hey, this really worked. I mean, whether it's the Arrowverse crossovers where you're just having all of them on top of each other and they manage to somehow magically work, or you're having the theme from Jerry Goldsmith and your theme kind of working together in tandem. It is, it's a beautiful thing to be able to experience and listen to, which is, which is really exciting. 
It is. It really is. And I think writing thematically is something that obviously Jerry Goldsmith did a lot and many other composers. And I think that was actually one of the ways that I I thought, okay, well, this is one of the ways I can carry on the idea of Jerry Goldsmith Mm -hmm. and his approach. It's got to be thematic and it's got to have that kind of lyrical approach as well as also like a very fun crazy vibe especially when you get to the gremlins and yes. you know, yeah, yeah and it's funny to me because when I associate Jerry Goldsmith I imagine big orchestra and probably my experience was mostly lots of Star Trek like all the Star Trek yes. themes and everything so you have these large orchestras and then you have his gremlin rag is actually very 80s super synthesizers and bass and all of that so I just found it really interesting that you kind of did the almost what I like to call the Jerry Goldsmith orchestral version with his theme yeah that's such an interesting way but I really liked it because you go that's that's actually what matches a little bit more of what I imagine his music yeah like more of the time yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, it, and that was something that, that the showrunners and, and creator really wanted. They wanted the opening title and main credits to be the Gremlin Rag. They wanted an arrangement. They really wanted to use Air Who. I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> let's yeah. do it. Jerry was always down for everything it seemed like in this movie. I, I never yeah. had the, the honor of meeting him. Sure. But I, I mean, in listening to his music, I just felt like, oh, he's down for anything. But yeah, you, you're right. And that, that was a conversation that happened at the beginning of the project, which was we all agreed it didn't really make sense to do the 80s synth approach if for anything, because how are we going to get ourselves to 1920s Shanghai? Absolutely, that's a bit of a, a dispute. Yeah, it's a bit of a conundrum there. But also, we all agreed that, well, I, I really felt, and luckily they went along with it, mm-hmm. um, but I really felt that they, it just, the story wasn't going to be as supported with that 80s or with a synth vibe, just because given the fact that they were going to all these different places, I mean, they're, Gizmo's flying on a bird, I mean, he's in a circus, you know, there's, there's a lot of epic, epic things happening in a lot of ways, it got bigger than, than the stories in the original films. But I think the second Gremlins film was orchestral, I believe. Sure. And that was, or, or at least a lot more orchestral. And so I feel yeah. like I, I was sort of grabbing maybe a little bit from there, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any other theme that you really love with it? Because there's so many different themes. Obviously, there's Riley's villain theme. I actually love the violin, uh, the tea lady that in episode four. Meng Po, oh my goodness. Thank yeah. you. I I had such fun with each of the episodes. I, you know, I really like their journey theme, um, yeah. which kind of became their friendship theme. Yes, that's the one that sticks in my head the most. Yes. Yeah, it's like the journey slash friendship. Grandpa had a theme. I like his. Really, honestly, though, I think I think my other favorite theme was the is the Gremlins theme. Sure. It's just, it's kind of like and it's slightly clownish, but it's also it's also a little creepy. Yeah, it's a little clown, a little circusy, a little clown. No, totally. And I just, I think I just had lots of fun doing it. Riley's theme I liked as well. But yeah, I, I just, I had fun with the with the Gremlins thing. And honestly, what what got really fun was in second season, which again is not out yet, so I'm not going to give anything away. But yeah. in recording the Gremlins theme, in watching, being able to watch the musicians, just sort of see them on, you know, see them through the glass and, and sometimes even just directly in the room and just being able to see them play. It, it was just, it was kind of, it was just a really special, special yeah. moment as well but yeah I mean again I I humbly say these are my favorite themes I don't normally go around and say oh yes listen how this is how much I love my music but it it was it was a very the project as a whole has been a very affirming process for me as a composer because I think we all as artists whether you're composing or if you're creating anything I don't think there's a single artist that I have that I've ever known who wouldn't say that they have struggled at least at some point with imposter syndrome, you know, or just the feeling like I don't 
somehow I got here and hopefully nobody finds out that, right. that I'm terrified, you know? And I, so I just feel like I definitely had those moments in working on the project, but there were also so many moments that were just, like I said, they were affirming and they were like, yes. And, and when, and everything was working out and everything is, you know, being accepted and, and, and being valued and having all these points, all these data points that are all leading up to, yeah, this is, this is a good fit of a project and it's really working. It's, it's just really affirming and a really, really special. And it's really important, I think, for all of us artists to have moments and projects like those, those, those ones where you look around and you're saying, yeah, this was a good fit. I was meant for this. This was meant for me. And here's all those reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, like I said, it's, I think it's important for all of us to have those moments in yeah. our careers. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> is very true. And especially because you've been doing so much Coke composing for mm-hmm. a large season. And in the past, I would say, what, couple years, you've really had yeah. your own shows, whether it's Kung Fu or you've even had like one or two Netflix rom-coms with the yeah. happiness and- And the lost husband, yeah. The lost husband, exactly. Which there's some beautiful, uh, anything there's like sad cello, I'm all, all about. Oh yeah. There's <laughs> some beautiful sad cello moments that the, and you're like, yep. Yeah. Love that moment. Uh, but yeah, so you've you know got projects like that. You have a new series coming out, I believe. Yeah, it just premiered. It's called oh, it? Found. Yeah, it's called Found. It's on NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, I also use vocals on that one as well. It's a great project. It's another Berlanti production. Great writing, great acting. It's a great story. And it's, I think it's relevant to our time today. But yeah, it's on, it's on NBC. I think it airs at 10 o'clock. Sure. It's a great show. Everybody watch it. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of soundscape is is this world that you're you're doing? It's it's much more synth based, uh, much more driving. You know that that kind of thing. It's not not orchestral. There's some strings right. in there because you gotta have yeah have to have strings. Yeah, but strings it's, and piano. You've gotta have those yeah. too. Those in there, and so so we we hear those for sure. Piano, but it's vocals as well. But it's mm-hmm. there's definitely some mystery and some you know it, it is it is actually it's a live action and it, it is fiction, but sure. the story is basically about finding missing people who are from communities that are maybe ethnicities or minorities that nobody would really care about, and so you have this sort of rogue group of people that are just going in and just doing the hard work that the cops won't do because of all the bureaucracy and the red tape. And, yeah, yeah. You know, so we get a lot of action and um, it's a procedural. I, I like, I like those types of things too. And there's, there's a little bit of a twist in there too. So it's, nice. but it's, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. And I, I feel so grateful to be have going back to what you were just said about, you know, starting with co-credits and having, you know, those, and it's funny because those were the first visible projects I had ever done. It's like, I was still doing my, indie films and you know smaller smaller budget things and things Mm -hmm. that just didn't really go to theaters or didn't really get on air but to have you know now to be able to kind of move over into a place where I can do you know have solo credits that people can see is is really special and really it's really and it's really fun as well but yeah it's it's I just feel so grateful to have such a wide variety of projects you know from the rom-coms that you've mentioned Mm -hmm. to superhero shows like Batwoman to the teen dramas like Riverdale Mm -hmm. And then based on a true story, like these sort of comedic thrillers and then animation, it's just like, it's, it's a, it's a really, again, I, I just, I feel like all artists, it's, it's variety is really important. I think it's, it's good that we all have those experiences and all have those different projects in our, in our journey. So I'm really grateful to have all that, you know, for me as well. So Linus knows you had several series going on at the same time. Do you find that that sometimes is helpful to just go, okay, I need a break from this one. Let's change genres or let's change 
moods and focus on this one for a little while? Or did you find that it was hard not to have them start to bleed into each other? You know what? They felt all different enough that I didn't feel like anything was going to bleed into one another because they just, they just, they were just all so different at the time. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, it is nice when you're kind of sort of fatigued in work in one sound or one palette to kind of just rest your brain and go to a different one. I do think I work better with multiple projects going on. That said, I very much enjoy when there's also only one and then you can really dig into it in a different yeah. way. But I do work better under pressure. So sometimes having <laughs> multiple going on is, is is sometimes a better thing. But but you know, I mean more than anything, the project will take as long as I as I have. So if it takes sure. if if I have three months, it'll take three months. If I have three weeks, it'll take three weeks. Mm-hmm. And if I have three days, it'll take three days. You know, if I'd had maybe multiple animations or more than one animation at the same Absolutely. time that it was a orchestral sound or sort of epic adventure, I think that would have been there would have been a little bit of danger in there. I'd have to, I'd have to probably form some uh, particular plan. But oftentimes, like I would do that, you know, before I would start working on a project for the day, I would listen to what I had done the night before or the, or earlier that day or something. Just kind of listen, just re-listen, just kind of get myself back into the mindset and remind myself of that. That's always a good, a good way to do it too. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious because I know for some, when you're living in music and you're writing music, do you ever listen to music? outside of your own or is it I need space I need quiet when I'm not working on on music I, I so much appreciate how you're asking that question because it tells me that you get it <laughs> because <laughs> so, like so often sometimes you get the question of like so what are you listening to these days you know it's right. something that I'm gonna drop like mic drop and be like oh yes you know rock on and off and but no I um I actually am listening to things these days, but most of the time I'm just sitting in quiet. Like if, if I have a chance, I just want to see sure. either hear nothing or mm-hmm. listen to like a podcast or like a talk radio that yeah. doesn't have any music so that I'm not hearing music. But lately I've been getting into like singer songwriter artists. So not, not instrumental. Yes. I mean, they might have to be instrumental, but not film music, not soundtracks or anything like mm-hmm. that. Some of your listeners are probably going to be like, I rolled about this, but I'm a relative newcomer to Jacob Collier. And I'm just like, what? So I've seen him now twice in concert four weeks or like three weeks or something like that. So mm-hmm. I'm like kind of, you know, a little bit obsessing about it just because sure. his music is just so crazy. Anyway, I'm also a newcomer to Hosier. I mean, sure. the guy who sings like, take me to take church. Me to church yeah. Yeah, yeah. But guys, if you listen to his stuff that's not on the radio, it's very sure. amazing. So, and then one of my favorite bands of all time that I, that I listen to all the time is, is called Elbow. But I think one of the reasons that I listen to to different artists now, uh, oh, another really great one is Simmel, S-Y-M-L. Okay. That's another good one. But too, if, if anyone enjoys any of those other people. That sure, yeah. Take a listen to Simmel. I think the reason I'm, in, I'm enjoying listening to singer-songwriter stuff is because it's just so different from what I'm writing. So it almost feels like a cleaning of the slate or resetting. It feels just as resetting to me as silence does. Mm-hmm. But I go through phases where I like don't want to hear anything at all. Sure. You know, no, so. I totally get that. Yeah. I often will listen to lots of choral music or soundtracks. I'm not actively seeking out cello sonatas and concertos and things like that, even though I enjoy them. But yeah, yeah I wanna I wanna listen to something else that's not the work that I'm doing. Yes. So yeah, need some yeah. time away from it. <laughs> I have time for one more question and then that's it. Since mentoring has been such a big part of your life and for your career, are you thinking possibly of doing the same for others? I know that you're also the governor of the TV branch of music. I think I got that right, but I'm not entirely sure if I switched the words or not. Is that something that's important to you to also help somebody else along the way in the way that you've kind of been given that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will say that that I'm not doing like necessarily as actively as let's say I was able to get it, but it's something that I do feel really strongly about that, you know, I think it's important to kind of pay it forward because there's like no, nobody gets anywhere in life without somebody helping, somebody believing in them, somebody giving them a chance. So it's there, you know, there's no reason to not pay that forward and, and, and help somebody else. It's one of the reasons I like doing sitting on panels or, or going to do like a, a talk or a Zoom at a class or something and just yeah. kind of fielding questions from people who are trying to get into the same business because the business is constantly changing. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, how Blake got into the business is completely different how I got into it. And not just because, you know, he helped me, but you know, he had all he also had a mentor. But incidentally, his mentor was Michael Kamen. But, oh, well, um, that's kind of yes, cool. I know that was nice like, full circle moment. There. I know exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's also because the way that you know I got into the business, even the way my assistants are starting, it's different. The, the industry is changing so much sure. that I just think it's important to share the knowledge. And you Absolutely. know, and I, I believe it's James Newton Howard who said this, or and I'm going to paraphrase. So I won't get it as eloquently as he probably said it. But I believe I believe he's credited for saying something like this: that if you're lucky enough to get the elevator up to the top floor, send it back down for someone else. Yeah. And I just thought this was a great analogy. It's, even if you're not going all the way to the penthouse, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Even if it's just, you, you got up to the next floor or a, another floor, sure. don't hold it. Don't hold Send it back mm-hmm. down because you know what? Someone else will send it back down for you and someone else will send, you know, and then you can send it back down for somebody else. And it's, yeah. I guess sending the elevator back down in air quotes kind of means whatever you want it to mean, I suppose, in the sense of like, how do you want to pass along your... Mm-hmm information or your knowledge or, or your help, or if somebody asks you a question or wants to pick your brain or wants to take you for coffee and ask you about something, can you make that time? Or can you do a zoom call with them and just kind of share or listen to the music and just give them some, some words of encouragement because it's a daunting business. It is a very, very daunting business. It's a difficult business. It's an expensive one. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes time to season as a composer. I believe that I'm a composer first then I'm a film composer because I believe a film and TV composer is a com- is not a completely different, but it's a completely separate added skill set that's yep. on top of a composer. I think writing within extreme parameters is very different than just writing music. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so, and so I feel like it's a very unique industry that is hard to navigate and it's hard to get into and it's hard to sustain yourself in it. Yeah. And, and again, you're just, you're marrying art with commerce and that's sure. automatically messes with your mind. And so I think mm-hmm. that in any way that I can give back is important, just especially knowing that those who came before me did the same thing yeah. for me. So yes, I think it's really important. No, you are right. It was sure. just switch the words around. <laughs> co-governor, because there's two, two of us, co-governor okay. of the uh, music branch of the Television Academy, which sounds fancy. It's a great um, organization. It's the it's the organization that gives out the Emmys. So this is you know, the, the Television Academy. I was elected. I'm, I'm happy to serve. It's a volunteer position sure. um, that I was elected to be in. So it's, it's great to kind of serve the community, give back into the community and help represent the voices of my, of the peer group, which is other composers, other fellow composers, Absolutely. songwriters and, and music creators. Mm-hmm. So, That's so yeah. cool. Great. Well, I think we've run out of time, but thank you so much. This has been really interesting to learn just even a little bit more about your process and, and what you've been writing. And we look forward to hearing Gremlin season two, and I'm definitely going to check out found and whatever else you're going to be doing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ruth. I really appreciate the time and and your questions and thank you so much for doing a little research. I, I appreciate just the opportunity to share and, and, uh, talk about, talk about music. Yeah.
Oh, I'm always happy to talk about music. It's what awesome. I do all day. Uh, so. <laughs> thank so, you. Thank you so much again. Thanks. Thanks again to Sherry Chung for joining us on the very first interview for World of Soundtracks. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did talking to her and just getting a little glimpse into what life is like as a TV composer. On the next episode, I will be focusing on the three different persuasions, which I know I promised last time, but that should be our last episode on Jane Austen adaptations. Each one has a unique focus in telling the story, yet none of them quite have the perfect soundtrack for my favorite Austen novel. Not that I'm a little biased. In the meantime, you can join in on the Facebook group, World of Soundtracks, or on Twitter or X, I guess, on in Instagram at WO Soundtracks. I would love to hear from you, and any feedback is welcome. Please like and subscribe, share with friends, or even leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon. I highly recommend subscribing so you don't miss when the next episode comes out. Until next time, happy listening. A special thanks to all those involved to make this podcast happen, especially Edith Mudge for the title music, Lindsay Bergsma for the graphics, and of course our guest, Sherry Chung. This is World of Soundtracks.